Hey everyone, this is Deacon Jim Rohner from Forefront Church, and similar to what we did a few months ago when we hired Fanita C. Rodman Jenkins as a new teaching pastor and we interviewed her so that you could get to know her better, her past, what brought her to Forefront, we are doing this again with our newly commissioned community pastor, Josh Lee. Vanita joins me in this episode along with Mackenzie Gomez, also of the Executive Council, and we just kind of have a free-flowing conversation, getting to know Josh a bit better, his past, his development, what ultimately led him to Forefront Church, and just that journey that led him as a queer man out of shame and into affirmation and ultimately into a fruition of what he saw as the spiritual vision of what he wanted to do and what he wanted to be in the church. It was a great conversation. We hope that not only does this help you get to know him a bit better, as we are now kind of have a clearer picture of what we are moving forward um, into as a church with a fully formed staff through this transitionary period, but also we just hope that it brings you some hope and brings you some inspiration and just kind of knowing that if you are feeling hurt, feeling lost, or feeling ashamed, that there is hope and there is hope in Jesus. Um, one of my favorite bits of, of this interview is when Josh highlights what he does love about Jesus and how that was an anchor for him throughout some really dark moments in his past. So really hope that you enjoy this conversation and we look forward to all of you joining us as Forefront moves forward into the future with this staff, with this vision, and with this future. Josh, thank you for uh, joining us in this, what I hope to be is a just free-flowing, get-to-know-you conversation. You have now been officially commissioned as the community pastor at Forefront on uh, November 14th. And um, this has been a, a transitionary time for us as a church and for us as a humankind. We are still in a pandemic as much as we would like to think that we are out of it. And Forefront itself has gone through changes with Vanita coming in recently, you now kind of coming in, just kind of solidifying that that staff position, that executive kind of council. Now we have a, a clear vision of this is who we are going to be moving into the future. So I just wanted to to help people get to know you a bit better, whether they have been longtime forefronters or they're just coming in for the first time. Like, who is this guy? Um, we hope that this podcast can kind of help highlight and answer that. So for you, I'm hoping you could kind of start by just telling us what led you to Forefront? And not necessarily in the sense of, well, there's a job opening and I applied to it, but more what kind of, you know, if you can condense it, I'm sure it's a long story, but just kind of what led you ultimately to the point where you were applying to be the community pastor position in a an affirming church in New York City for you? Yeah. Um, so I would say that in many ways, the reason that Forefront stood out to me as a place where I wanted to, to serve as a community pastor alongside Mac and Vinita um, is really because I come from such a sort of Baskin Robbins of faith of Christianity, so many different flavors and tastes. And so it was like, this just feels like such a perfect fit. Um, so I grew up in the Assemblies of God, uh, which is a charismatic Pentecostal type tradition. Um, and as a really little kid, my grandma would always sort of drag me to church on a Sunday, but eventually it got to the point where I was dragging her to the front row because that's where I wanted to sit as close to the pastor as possible. And then I would drag her home and sit her down on the couch and be like, all right, let's listen to whatever five-year-old, seven-year-old truths I had taken from the sermon today. And I would just make up stuff like that I had heard from the sermon that like my interpretation of it, um, you know, and it, it even got to the point where, you know, when my, when my parents got a divorce when I was five, 
um, you know, there was a lot of conversation around like why they got married, why, why they got divorced and, um, you know, unfaithfulness and things like that. And the pastor had talked about adultery in one of his sermons. And so for Christmas that year, my grandma gathered everyone in the living room to like sing Christmas carols. And then I was like, oh, this feels like church. Like we should like have a sermon. And so with my dad sitting in the living room, I preached a sermon on adultery and why it was a sin and how we need to repent at like five years old. Um, yeah. And so my grandma is like, you know, kind of like just looking in the back, like encouraging me, like preach it, Jay, preach it. And my dad's like looking at her, like, stop this, like, please make this stop. Um, so I think I always had like this prophetic voice, but also just like always knew I was going to be a preacher. Um, yeah. And so then after my parents divorced, like we, I didn't go to church for a stint of time. So from like five to nine, and I was just like, as I said in my commissioning sermon this last Sunday, I was a menace of a kid. And so finally, my mom didn't know what to do with me. They were going to kick me out and send me to a disciplinary school. And so my mom took me to an Assemblies of God church. And it was really in that space that I, for the first time, found that like, um, I really resonated with this message of forgiveness and, and new beginnings and like the Holy Spirit filling me to help me be this person that like I knew my family wanted me to be. I knew my teachers wanted me to be, and deep down I knew what I wanted to be. Um, and so really, as I said in my sermon Sunday too, I had done so much uh, bad stuff to get attention. Um, and I learned that I could do good stuff and get just as much attention. And so I really, you know, while my, all my friends were like really great at sports and the arts, I was good at church stuff. I found, I kind of found my niche. Um, and so I would ride my bike to church every day after school and started shadowing the pastor when I was in middle school. And he just kind of showed me the ins and outs of everything he did. And so going into high school, he's like, I really think God has a call in your life to be a pastor. And I just remembered my grandma's encouragement as a little kid and my love for this work. And so, yeah, I was like, okay, I want to do that. Like, let me just keep teaching me. Um, and so I ended up leading a ministry in my, in my high school uh, that multiplied and really led to an opportunity for me to take my first uh, paid gig when I was 17, going into my senior year of high school as a youth director at an American Baptist church. Um, so the youth ministry I started merged with their youth ministries. That was my first job. And when I graduated, they were like, hey, if you want to keep this job, then you need to go and get some letters behind your name. And so they encouraged me to go to Moody Bible Institute, which was like an hour away from the church. I had never heard of Moody, um, but I, I knew I wanted to keep this job. Some education sounded good. Um, and so I went. And while I was at Moody, I met this professor and he believed that the response to homosexuality was lifelong singleness and celibacy. And so hearing that freshman year, yeah, and the eye rolls that you can't see folks on this podcast uh, happened because that for me actually sounded like saving grace. It sounded amazing because I had at that point um, gone through reparative therapy throughout high school, tried to change my sexuality. And so this idea of being able to just say, oh, I you know, I am gay, but I'm choosing to refrain or I'm same-sex attraction, but I'm choosing to be single and celibate. That sounded so much better than having to try to lie or be something that I wasn't and try to change. And so I sort of took that hook, line, and sinker and the, the church I was serving on staff at, the American Baptist Church, they just, that was not where they were at. Um, they were basically like, it's either straight or nothing. And so I was eventually let go from that position. Um, you know, and a lot of people at this point are usually like, okay, like, why would you stay in the church? Why didn't you just walk away? Um, but I just really loved Jesus. I was super gay and I wanted to be a pastor. Like those three things were just as important. And there wasn't like a tiered level there. Um, they all mattered. And so I was like, all right, I need to just make somehow make these things work. 
Um, so I worked, went back to the Assemblies of God where I had grown, grown up uh, midway through college in Moody and served as an associate pastor there. And after a year there, it came out that I, that I was single and gay pastor and the um, higher ups basically said, you have to go through reparative therapy and I refused. Um, so again, I lost that job and finally finished my degree at Moody Bible Institute. And um, of all places in the world, I got a job in Madisonville, Kentucky, in a town of like 15,000 people in the South. I had never even been to the South before. Um, and I picked up all my worldly possessions a week after graduation and moved to Kentucky. And um, while I was there, I really, I thought they understood my story of like single and celibate. Um, but for them, gay was something that you, um, it really wasn't an identity. It was something you do, not something that you are. And so in their minds, when I said I had been celibate for five years and was and was single during that time, in their minds, I was like an alcoholic, basically, like I had kicked that habit um, and I wasn't going to drink men again. Like it was, it was gone. It was done. It wasn't going to happen. Uh, and reality was, is like, mm, that's not actually the full story here. Um, I'm still gay, just choosing to not act on it. Um, and so I went back in the closet because I realized I was going to lose another job if I was honest. Um, so that first year was really good. Stayed super busy at the church. Uh, we, we multiplied uh, like by three times what we were before. And I was just grateful for the work there and the ministry there and just doing what I loved. Um, but that second year there, I just totally went inward and really became angry with God, filled with so much shame and self-hatred. Um, and I got to the point where I was beginning to sort of be just afraid of myself. Like I was afraid of falling in love with a man or doing something sexual with a man. And all of a sudden, you know, I would lose my career. I would lose my family. I would lose the importance and values of my degrees and my friends. And so, um, as I shared on my candidating Sunday, you know, I got to the point where there was a night when I was just sitting at home, I was so depressed. I was so low. I thought I better, I bet it's best for me just to get in my car, sit in the parsonage garage and turn it on and hope that I go to sleep and end up in heaven. Then take the chance that maybe one day I would sin and lose everything and go to hell. And so wrestling with that internal battle, Facebook in its infinite wisdom uh, must have heard that or saw Google searches of me trying to figure out how to <laughs> figure out my sexuality. And they started putting uh, on my newsfeed gay affirming churches. And I'm like, what is, what is a gay affirming church? I was 23 at the time, had never heard of that concept. Um, and so I started clicking the heresy and reading it and realizing like, oh, there's like whole historic Christian denominations that allowed gay civil unions at the time and gay pastors. And so um, I started studying and reading. And at the end of that year in 2015, I decided I really didn't think um, that there was anything wrong with being gay. I was just afraid of the people that that did. And so I, I stepped up, stepped away and resigned from that job. And um, the Sunday that my last Sunday in the pulpit at that church, the Supreme Court voted in favor of gay marriage. So if the skies could have opened up and it started raining men like that, that was the moment that was it. Like, it's going to be OK. You got this. Um, so I, I, I kind of went on this sort of nomad journey, though, because once I came out in that way as affirming in my theology, I mean, I lost a majority of my friends. Um, I, my family wrestled with this topic. My mom loved me with full embrace, which I was so grateful for. 
Um, and in many ways, uh, you know, I, my career fell apart. I, I, all of my networking and social connections for work were just gone. Um, and so, yeah, I, I went and I attended a Methodist church one Sunday because they had a sign out front that said messy progressive religion. And I was like, those people will take me, I bet. Um, and they did. They had a rainbow flag in the sanctuary and they just gave me this warm welcome. And so I was going to go maybe the Methodist route at one point, And then I was like, oh, the Methodists still don't have this fully figured out as far as gay clergy go. And so then I started attending a United Church of Christ congregation. And in the end, that's society, I decided to pursue ordination transfer with them. And then they encouraged me to also go to seminary uh, and get uh, my master's from a progressive institution. And so I started going to Garrett Theological. That's in Evanston, Illinois. Um, and I spent uh, three years there while also working at a Methodist church, which was kind of interesting eh? uh, as, an, as an associate pastor for two years at one Methodist church and then a church plant planning resident at another Methodist church um, in, in the city of Chicago proper. So it was a very interesting experience to sort of just experience another flavor of the church that I wasn't used to. Um, and then when I graduated from Garrett, I moved to Peoria, Illinois, where I have spent the last three years serving as uh, one of the co-pastors there, teaching pastors specifically uh, at an interdenominational church called Imago Day, And um, that eventually led me to find Forefront. Uh, it was actually Jennifer Fisher, who uh, is one of the founding pastors, I suppose you would say, of, of Forefront. And I said, I think I'm looking for something different, something new, something in a bigger city, um, something progressive, something interdenominational with a lot of young people and energy that's diverse. And uh, she's like, I think I, I think I know where you need to be. And so she hooked me up with Forefront. And uh, long story short, here we are. We've been here for, um, this is week four since we've moved. So that's a long answer to your simple question. <laughs> We love it though. And we love Jan and we're so grateful that you were able to sync up with her and, and kind of have that direction towards you. Um, <laughs> there's so many parts of that answer that I, I love, especially I'm just imagining in my head, your cover letter to four was like, I'm Josh, I'm super gay and I love Jesus and I want to be a pastor. It's like, <laughs> perfect. We, we found what we're looking for here. Oh yeah. Sold, they thought to themselves. So that was amazing. It was great hearing. Um, your story, Josh. Thank you so much for sharing. Nida Rodman Jenkins here, a member of your executive council, um, just three months uh, ahead of you uh, as part of the EC. So, so very, very happy to be working alongside you. And as you were sharing, I began to think about all of the many things that you experienced and all the ways that people marginalized you uh, because um, of your identity. And I'm wondering if you could talk a bit about how you actually coped and who or what helped you through all the various situations um, that you experienced when you were trying to be fully free um, and you weren't allowed to be. So yeah, just really thinking about coping and what support systems you had in place for yourself during all that time. Yeah. I love that question. You know, whenever you, people share their stories, they just like share the high notes, but there's all this deeper work that has to happen to like navigate any of that, like with a sane mind. Um, so thanks for that. So, you know, when I was uh, in Kentucky and really wrestling with gay theology and sort of that inward battle, um, 
there was one person that God just divinely sort of put in my life when I arrived in Kentucky. Her name is Linnell and she watches Forefront's live streams and comments. So if you ever watch the live stream, she's always commenting something on there. Um, I have no bigger fan than, Lin than Linnell and no greater friend, honestly. So she uh, was somebody that when I first came there, she really felt the Holy Spirit say, you are called to serve Josh in this season. She had no idea what that meant. Um, and really all it, what it meant was that um, she was supposed to help me stand on my two feet because God only knew and she didn't know and neither did I that um, I would try to basically crawl over to church every Sunday in my in my second year because I was just so depressed so low um, and she was the first person I really let in and just begin to tell her hey I'm starting to read gay affirming theology books and I'm starting to question everything that I've been taught and she would just so patiently listen to the things I was reading and studying and would ask me good questions. And then when she could see right past me when I would come in the office and could tell that I had had a restless night or I was super depressed or um, there would be a, you know, a Sunday when I wasn't over at the church an hour before it was getting close to service time and I hadn't walked across the parking lot from the parsonage and she was like, you she's having a day and you know and she would she would give me what i needed to prompt me and get me out of the bed and get over to the church to preach um just grounded me so many times and the day that i came to her and told her i'm going to resign because i don't think anything's wrong with being gay anymore she said i am so glad you finally came to that conclusion and i'm like what she's like i read those books you told me you were reading months ago and i changed my views a long time ago now um long before you did like months ago when you when i started reading those and i'm like why didn't you tell me she's like because you needed to go on your own journey she's like i she's like i took mine and i read it and i changed my views i was here waiting for you to come to your change of view and she's like and now that you have she's like i'm here to support you uh, and she did. And, and, and those were some hard waters ahead after I left and the safety nets and the, the systems and the friends and the people I always leaned on were gone. And she was really all I had. Um, and that was so essential to my spiritual, emotional health. And ultimately the church fired her. She had came on staff as my administrative assistant within the first few months of me coming on staff there. And so when I left, um, they asked her several questions about what they thought what she thought about my sexuality and my leaving. And she was very affirming of me and my sexuality. And so they let her go and told her she was no longer welcomed in the church because they didn't want her to, to spoil the views and thoughts of like the youth and things like that. And so she left and, you know, what was hard for me was that I wasn't able to be there for her in Kentucky. I left Kentucky and her, her family to this day still like look down upon her for her views. Um, they had left the church when I became the pastor because of my sexuality. And then when she got fired, they came back to the church that she was fired from. And so, I mean, that just hurt even more, you know, this, this deep wound. And she, but she stood by me and loved me and by her convictions of what she believed to be true. And so she's someone that has, that has walked with me in that journey um, in a big way. And then I would say the second person is when I started seminary, uh, I did therapy twice a week for two years um, because I just had so much trauma, so much pain, so much shame, as I talked about last Sunday, to work through. And so I think that was deep and important work. And then when I went to uh, Peoria, um, you know, I, I had several mentors, but I also started seeing a spiritual director, which was just so instrumental in helping me gain back my confidence. I had lost so much confidence as a pastor 
because I had told myself my whole ministry in, in Kentucky and before, if you're a really good pastor, if you work 60 hours a week, if you say yes to everything that everyone asks and wants of you, maybe when you come out one day, people will overlook the fact that you're gay. And when I came out and people didn't overlook it and I had sat with people and walked with people and been there for people through hard things. And then when I needed them to go through it with me, they weren't there. That's when I realized, oh, that is a huge lie. I believed that like, if I kill myself for people, they'll kill themselves for me and overlook things later. Um, and so losing ministry and having to, in many ways, hit a reset button on my time in ministry um, my confidence was really hit. I mean, I went back to school. I was never planning to go back to school. My first job after school was an internship. You know, as I said, a church planning residency. Then I was an associate pastor in a, in, a, in a Methodist church. And then finally I got to be a senior pastor again, which was really what I wanted and needed deep down because I was like, that's what I was doing before. And I felt like when I came out, I had to hit a total reset button because the progressives were like, wait, you went to Moody, you're conservative. Like, I think you just need to relearn all church again. Um, and so my confidence took a huge hit. And, and so going to spiritual direction was really grounding for me to realize like my identity is so much more than my pastoral work. Like my self-worth is so much more than my title or my position in a church. And so my spiritual director helped me find my worth and value outside of just one thing. Uh, and so I think all of those people, those places, those spaces have really helped me do that deeper work and continue to do that work. That's awesome. Thank you so much for sharing. Can't wait yeah. to meet and tell her to come come visit us in New York. Yeah. <laughs> I know I've already yes. spoken high of my spiritual director, Shelly Bauer. I'll give a little shout out on this podcast for anybody who's interested in uh, Shelly Bauer. She does uh, virtual stuff. So you're interested in her for spiritual direction. I love all of this. Thank you so much, Josh. This is Mac, pronoun she hers. I'm another member of the executive Council and um, yeah, Josh, there's just so much richness and depth to your story that you've shared. And I'm sure this is the condensed version too. Um, and as I'm listening, I, I just keep thinking, wow, there's so much that you're sharing that I know my story is parallel to and I relate mm -hmm. to so deeply. And I know that there are listeners who feel the same way, who are either have gone through a similar journey or quite often um, Forefront is the first church that they've been to that is affirming mm. and they're starting to wrestle with reading the same books that you probably read that I read um, yeah. and going through that beginning stage of accepting their sexuality and finding that intersection between yeah. spirituality and sexuality. Um, and so I'm just thinking, you know, two years ago when I came to Forefront, that first service was when I came out to myself and I know my story is not unique in that. So as you, you know, you have a month under your belt being here at Forefront and you've been preaching more, meeting our congregation, what goes through your mind now that you've been through this maybe decade of, of work and now you're here as on the executive council at a church preaching to in, a, in an affirming space? What goes through your head when you're preparing your sermons and when you're thinking about our congregation? What what are the what are the maybe pillars or or like big themes that you want people to hear? Yeah, um, you know, it just happened that before I you know even came on, you all had constructed this sermon series that we're we're currently in, keeping it real. And it just so happened that I would be assigned the topic of shame this Sunday, 
because it just so happened that the Holy Spirit knows what she's doing usually. <laughs> and uh, Reverend Vanetta and Mac, you both know how to listen. So I, it, it so works out well that uh, shame is, you know, is sort of the, the resounding sound that I try to really get to, because I think shame, it, it, it is a core issue for many in the queer community, but, but it, it expands to every human experience, right? I mean, that's the story of the prodigal cross when they, and to some degree, hang this mocking letter above him, uh, calling him the king of the Jews in order to shame him and, and isolate him and make him feel, you know, almost dumb in many ways. And, and, and yet there is this, there is this resounding message that, that shame never has the last message, that the snake doesn't get to say the last word, that the older brother doesn't have the last sound uh, in the story, you know? And so for me, I think shame, talk, addressing that root issue in so many of us uh, is really important. And then I, I would also just say, like, um, helping people to experience a generous orthodoxy or a generous theological beliefs, meaning that 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 it's important for us as Christians to, to be generous, not just in like what we believe, but also in generous and the room that we create for other people to believe things, right? It is it was so easy for me at the beginning of my reconstruction of faith to just swing to the other extreme. And I became a fundamentalist liberal where I'm just like, this is the absolute truth on all of these things, but it's the most liberal of beliefs because I came from a tradition where in fundamentalism, certainty is really important. And, and so wanting that certainty again, and just being like, okay, I'm just going to stream, you know, swing to the other extreme on the liberals theological belief side wasn't helpful because it, well, all it did was it just left me at the same place I was with conservative fundamentalist beliefs. And so I think creating a generous orthodoxy where in which, which is the words of Brian McLaren and uh, his excellent book on ge called Generous Orthodoxy is really this extension to be both generous sharers and generous hearers uh, of people's beliefs. And what I mean by that is there, there's a way to share our beliefs in such a way that isn't on the defense, but is on the offense. And so to be able to share our beliefs and not have to say, here are all the things that I don't believe anymore in order to explain the things you do believe. I think in everyone's process of faith, there's always, um, when you're reconstructing and deconstructing, I think we all go through a season like that, where we're like, well, I don't believe that anymore. And like, we need to clearly be able to say and define what we don't believe anymore. But I think there's a point in our spiritual process uh, and journey information where we, we, we should get to the point where we don't have to define our beliefs by what we don't believe. We can just define our beliefs by what we do believe. And I think in doing so, we build bridges. And I think in doing so, we, 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 we help ground ourselves in not being bitter people, but being people who are, who are hopeful and, um, and open. Uh, but also, I think in many ways, it, um, it provides space for us to allow our beliefs to continually change still, right? Um, I, I, I've used this before in a sermon illustration. I'm going to use it again, and I'm going to regret it because I'm going to want to use it at forefront. It's not going to be unique. But uh, building a, a Jenga tower in one of my sermons, and, and the Jenga tower, it really is this image of a constructed belief system that for us, most of our beliefs were constructed by, not for us, for everyone, your beliefs were constructed by somebody your family, your teachers, your Sunday school teachers, the television shows that you watch, the books that people put in your hands to read. Somebody else constructed the towers of what your beliefs were. They wanted you to be a certain way and for a certain perspective and beliefs in the world. And at some point, maybe that's end of high school, college, midlife, wherever that may be, 
somebody starts poking at that tower and going, well, what about, you know, women in ministry? Shouldn't they be given equal standing? Or, or what about this thing in the Bible that kind of actually seems maybe inconsistent or a different perspective than what you've been taught? Or what about atonement theory or whatever it may be, right? Um, and people start poking at this tower of the way you view the world. And for some people, you know, it's the blocks that are at the top of the tower that get poked. And so, the tower is not that unstable. It just maybe has a few holes in it. But others of us, the bottom, the base uh, gets poked, right? And all of a sudden, the whole tower comes down. And we find ourselves sitting before all this, you know, finished Jenga game of our beliefs. And we're like, you know what? I don't really want to play again. Like, who wants to ever build the Jenga tower back? No one wants to do that. Like, usually there's one person in the circle that's like, oh, I'll build the tower so we can play again. And everyone else is like, that's cool. If you want to rebuild, I, then I'll play. Um, but reality is, is that's what happens with so much of our faith. It, it completely tumbles down. And unless someone else rebuilds it for us, a lot of us just stare at the rubble and like game over. But for rea reality is, is I think that the, the tower falling is really an invitation, not necessarily always to rebuild the tower, but to maybe create a path with the blocks, right? That, that there never has to, you don't have to have this long stable thing that all of a sudden is this new constructed thing that that's my new tower. No, don't touch it. Don't go near it. I don't want to play it again. Don't question it. But instead, a path where you can move the, the, the blocks around into different ways and shapes and places and, 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 and to realize that this, that this tower was never really necessary to live. You just really need some foundation to stand on, which is what these blocks provide and to walk on. And so for me, my hope, my desire in the church now, having walked through all of that, is, is to help people whose tower has fallen or whose tower has some holes in it, or whose tower is about to fall, or who people who are so protective of their tower that they're unwilling to let anybody push or question to help them take that journey to not be afraid of what that falling or that poking or that prodding um, or that rebuilding or restructuring a path could look like um, because there's something new in it. And I don't think any of the disciples or any of the early church fathers or mothers would have ever created Christianity if they weren't willing to let Jesus poke at their tower um, and let their beliefs be reconstructed. And that's what ushering the next 500 years is about. It's about always following what's come before us to build something new. And that means poke, poke away, let it fall. Can I get an amen? Yeah, I'm going to start <laughs> preach. preaching here. You better preach, Rev. You better <laughs> preach. Oh, my gosh. That's, mm. I'm over here crying at this <laughs> sermon you're giving us right now. And, I, and mm. I hope that you do use that example time and time again in your future sermons at Forefront because people need to hear that. Yeah. People need to hear that wonderful imagery. And I think that it's such a beautiful imagery to go with a phrase that we always say at forefront that we're not here to find the right mm -hmm. answers. We're here to ask good questions. Yes. And those good questions poke and prod at that tower. And then I also thought of the image when you were talking about the path of, um, you know, when flowers bloom out of concrete mm -hmm. cracks. Yes. That to me is yes. what your whole story made me think of. Thank you for sharing. Oh, I love that imagery so much. Uh, yes, I'm looking for that sermon. <laughs> I'm looking forward to that sermon as well. Um, thank you. That was wonderful. And I loved the um, generous orthodoxy that you spoke about and how important it is to build bridges, to build bridges. And in building bridges, um, 
I'm thinking about our affirming community and, you know, something really resonated with me when you mentioned when you fully came out of the closet, if you will. Um, around that time, the Sunday after, to be exact, um, gay marriage was legalized. Um, I came out as an affirming ally. All right. Oh, so wow. I say out in quotes, right? But it was yeah. that same Sunday because my pastor at the time uh, preached and he told the church that the church would be affirming. That was that wow. Sunday. And it was the same Sunday that I knew that I wanted to come out as an ally. And um, my partner, Todd, and I were heading to the, um, to the Pride Parade in the village. Uh, so anyway, yes, we share that same Sunday. And I have a question about allies because it's one thing to go to a church that is affirming and to worship among uh, people who identify within the LGBTQIA community. I think that is absolutely beautiful. However, when it comes to allyship, I feel like we may need to do something else, you know, as, mm -hmm. as Christians, as a church. And my question to you is, what do you feel you need from allies uh, beyond the fact that they are affirming? What are some of the ways that allies can create a more inclusive environment for the queer community at Forefront Church and beyond? Yeah, um, I would say, you know, sharing power in, in, in spaces where you have power and influence and privilege is really important. You know, I, I think, you know, if, if you're invited, whether this is in the church setting or the corporate setting, you know, if you if you have a committee or a team or you're part of hiring in any way to think like look around the room, like who's missing, you know, um, do we see people of color in the room? Or do we see LGBTQ people, you know, and, and don't tokenize either. Right. Don't be like, well, we, we, yep, we have hired one gay person. And so that's sufficient. Um, no, but think about like, OK. Um, well, does that one gay person maybe feel alone or not feel like they could actually speak up and share their true opinions because they know that they'll be alone? So maybe allyship is actually saying like maybe we need to have more than one so that they feel like they have a voice and a, and a larger piece of the pie um, so that they can actually be able to share their opinions without feeling like, oh, no one in the room is going to be able to back me up if I share this or say this or give my ideas here. And so I, I think about that um, in, in that context. And then I, you know, I mean, and that doesn't have to just be the workplace, like everyone has power as far as like, who do you invite to dinner parties, right? And like, who do you engage with um, on a day to day basis in the workplace? Uh, and, and who do you count as your friends? You know, what is that? What does that look like? Um, so I think that's, that's important. At the same time, you know, I, I realize I hold this tension, like, like I will admit, I prefer to hang around LGBTQ people because I don't have to code switch language. Like people understand, they, they know the story, they know the jokes. Like there's a certain way we talk when we're with one another that is like just unique that you just don't talk with somebody who's straight because it just doesn't come out as naturally, right? Like there's just this sort of tone and this rhythm and this cadence, there's a culture. And so I get that there's this desire to sort of, you know, for us to like sort of huddle together in our different groups of what's comfortable. Um, and, and there's some levels of intersectionality. And so I'm not saying that that's bad. I think there, I think there is goodness in that. I think there's value and beauty in that um, and having those safe places to, to go and just be your full self and not have to code switch. But I, I think at the same time, um, we, that, that can't be the only place we spend our time, you know, um, and that can't be the only place we spend our, our privilege and, and our energy. So 
I would say that that's something really important. Um, and then I would say the other ally piece that that is that is important is to not project. Okay, I'm going to get in the weeds here. Oh boy, um, to not project like heteronormative um, expectations upon like the queer community. And so, what the way I think about this most clearly is around sexual ethics. I mean, I thought the series that Forefront did, you know, on sex was really uh, was really powerful and important. And there were a lot of things that it spoke to me that reassured me that that this was going to be a place that I wanted to call home, but also that I wanted to work, because it, to me, Forefront. Um, it, it, it's trying to create this culture that doesn't expect uniformity around sexual ethics for everyone, but to allow this sort of invitation that allows a generous sexual ethic that allows people to be able to figure out what is works for them and different expressions of that and different boundaries for that. Um, and so I think that's really important. One of the things I think that I've struggled with as a, as a gay man is when, you know, um, the heteronormative straight cis culture has certain expectations of like, this is what is okay to like post on social media or to like, where, where, where is a swimsuit out, you know? Um, or this is what is okay for like public displays of affection or like relationship boundaries. Um, you know, all of those things, those get to be decided by like the humans who are in a relationship with each other, um, not by the culture and society at large. Like as long as like consent and care and covenant are, are, are expressed in those relationships, that's a whole other sermon I could preach on sexual ethics, consent, care and covenants, my evangelical, my three C's coming out. And I, I think as long as, as those things are like being held by the people who are engaging in, you know, whatever ethic that is, which the queer community has a very wide sexual ethic and where, you know, that looks to for expression. And so I think just like an ally can, can advocate for that and give space for that and not project expectations based on mainstream culture onto every relationship and then deem it bad if it doesn't fit into that. Yeah, and as you're talking, Josh, it made me think of Forefront's value of uncommon kinship. And that is a mm -hmm. value that we brought in just a year ago um, yeah. to put name to it just a year ago. And it, it just makes me think of, you know, what spaces do we occupy? Um, and I think of our small groups and I think of, you know, our, our worship team or our, our um, Sunday team groups and, and all of those different you know, who you go to brunch with after church, all of those spaces that we occupy and search for community. And um, it, it just sounds to me like more encouragement of pursuing that uncommon kinship yeah. and listening and hearing other people's stories who, who might live or have lived a life different than yours yes. and learning from that and, 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 and growing from hearing each other's stories and perspectives. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that pokes the tower a little bit more, right? Um, there's something beautiful about that uncommon kinship. Jesus didn't, you know, pick all tax collectors um, or all fishermen as his 12 to follow, right? He, he picked from a, a diverse pool of people because I think that there's this, there's this beautiful uncommon kinship of people who wouldn't have never spent time together outside of Jesus gathering these 12 that sort of shapes and fold and forms the faith that we, we now express. It's such a wonderful image and something that we can often forget about too, especially, I don't know if this is the proper phrase, but sometimes we, we kind of want to surround ourselves with an echo chamber where it's like, I want to be, I want my beliefs to be constantly validated by people who believe the same thing that I do. Um, when, yeah, I mean, if you look back at the image of Jesus, that's not really how it worked for him. But 
Uh, I do. I, I've I've had this in my head since you brought up this idea of the Jenga tower, um, because this is a very Sunday school thing. But one of those blocks is always for Christians. Jesus. Um, and yet, I know looking back at my development, um, one of the things that poked at that tower was years ago in Philadelphia, listening to an interview or or a, a speech from a a commune called a Simple Way, in which one quote that has stuck in my brain since then was. The only problem with Christianity is all the Christians. And mm. as someone who has gone through the journey that you have, I mean, you said like, you know, I, but I love Jesus. And yet mm. it's so easy for someone who's been in your position to kind of look at the people that have followed him or who have claimed mm. to follow him and say like, I don't want anything to do with a man, with a teacher, with a God, if these are the people that represent it, him, she, yeah. however you want to refer um, to God. So for you, when you say you love Jesus, that seems to have been kind of an anchor that kept you in in into on this journey, even though you did get to a dark spot. So when you say I love Jesus, what is it for you that maybe others can find hope or inspiration when you're like, I love Jesus? What is it about him, that message that just kind of kept you into this? Yeah, I, I honestly, I think that um, my love for Jesus was able to stay so intact because my love for or my understanding of the Bible really evolved and changed. So when I was able to look at like, for instance, the four gospels, which are really our, our, our only glimpse into the life of Jesus. Uh, when, when I read those and I find that like each writer has different takes on Jesus or chooses to tell certain stories differently or omit certain stories and include certain stories. Um, that, you know, for, for some, they see that and they're like, okay, I'm throwing the whole thing out. Like it clearly there's, there's inconsistencies I'm done with the Bible. Right. Or I don't know how to depend on who Jesus really is. When I saw that, I saw the humanity while also balanced with the divinity of Jesus and that I could see all of these sort of different sides and personalities and perspectives of who this person was that I was choosing to follow um, and whose image I was crafted after. And so I could see myself in Jesus over and over again. Like I could see the, the internal battles. I could see the, 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 the anger with injustice, but also this, this gentle kindness to still continually talk with the Pharisees and not just shut them down all the time and, and give them the silent treatment, right? Like the people who don't understand and they're not seeming to get it. Um, but also like this, this sort of like persistent patience with the disciples while also like, you know, straight up telling like Peter, like get behind me, Satan, like that's pretty harsh. Um, you know, and so there's this like tension that I see in the beauty of who Jesus is, um, that for me, it's not this God who's just like stripped, everything is stripped away and you just have this perfect image. I mean, you know, we, we've talked about Jesus as this God who doesn't make any mistakes. Um, and, and I think that the beauty of it is that our humanity and the emotions and the expressions of that, that we see aren't a mistake, like they're not a sinful thing. Like, and Jesus expresses that and shows that. And like Jesus sweating blood in the garden because he's filled with fear. Um, like, like, like Reverend Renaitich talked about uh, two weeks ago, you know, the politics of fear, he's filled with fear with this thing he's being called and asked to do. Like some might look at that and say that that's imperfect, right? That he was ever doubting or questioning or even wondering what to do. No, like that, that's part of humanity. That, that's beautiful. Um, and the fact that I get to see Jesus deal with that helps me identify with the one whose image I've been created in, in, in front of and, and, and shafted from, crafted from. So I, I think that uh, for me, that is a deep reason why I love Jesus. But also I think I, I love Jesus um, 
just because I feel it. I mean, so much of love we know as humans is a feeling, right? I mean, we, we can hardly describe it. Maybe we could tell you a few characteristics we, we love about somebody, but but there is this deep feeling in me that, you know, and that when a certain song comes on and I am just singing that to Jesus and I sense Jesus's presence, you know, in me and around me. And there's something that lifts me up out of that place, just like a hug from a loved one when, when you're in a tough place. Uh, that is that same love and experience I have with Jesus. Now, not everybody's thing is music, but that's my thing. That That is my number one go-to at the smorgasbord of spiritual practices when I really need to just tap into the presence. I mean, I go to go to music um, and and Forefront knows how to do that well. And so that's another reason why I'm super excited to be a part of uh, a community that um, I think it will enhance my love for Jesus um, with music because that's that's my place. Uh, again, Josh, we're so happy that you are here. Um, we're looking forward to more opportunities to get to know you, to get to know your your voice, the message that you bring. Uh, and I do have a question for you that I have to admit, I'm in, in full disclosure, comes from the perspective of someone who has been um, a straight white cisgender man his entire life and who has never had to go through trials or tribulations such as you have experienced or that Vanita has experienced or that Mac has experienced. This idea that you are now in in an environment which affirms you and which your message can get to people who need that affirmation, who need that validation. Um, and, and I'm wondering in terms of, because um, my, my brain is in two points in the sense of like, this is awesome. And also the people who are in your similar situation back in a Peoria, back in Kentucky, back in that kind of thing, um, who are looking for that kind of a voice as well. Um, what what can we do for people like that? Because um, you, we're so happy to have you here. We're so thrilled about it. And yet it's like, but then also there were communities that have lost someone like you, that have lost voices like mm -hmm. you. And I guess just that thing of how to hold on to that hope for those people or like, or how we should be reaching out to those, um, to those people too, who need someone like you and now, you know, are, are, are not having that. I, I, I don't know if that, if that makes sense. It made more sense in my brain than uh, when it came out of my mouth. Yeah, I, I hear what you're saying. I, I think, um, you know, if I think about back to my time in Kentucky and, and the things that were helpful for me, it was, it was, it was just people in the church who, who loved me well, right? I mean, particularly Linnell. Um, and, and so, and then Facebook, I know it just sounds crazy, but Facebook, you know, it, it put on the algorithm, like this invitation to see something different. And so I think, you know, maybe Facebook isn't the answer is what I'm saying, but I, th I think ways that we can partner with churches that are already there, um, to help support their message or lift up their message, you know, progressive spaces and churches in the South, they're present, they're there. They're not usually as big. They don't have as many resources as some as as some of the more predominantly larger progressive churches um, here in New York City or anywhere in the Midwest. And so I think ways that we can do that is is to provide support to them, whether that is financial support or whether that is uh, boots on the ground support. Um, you know, I think of the, the Q, QCF, um, which is uh, Q stands for many different things, but most often people identify with as, as queer Christian fellowship. Uh, they're a national organization that really provides support to people who are in the LGBTQ community that 
ultimately live in places where there aren't a lot of or any gay affirming churches. And so they they hold conferences once a year, but they also have like small groups and virtual workshops. And they've been doing this whole virtual thing long before this pandemic to try to connect LGBTQ people who live in isolated places around the globe um, to connect with other affirming people and people who understand them. And so I think supporting organizations like that, um, you know, back to Renita's question around allyship, I think allyship is also, you know, not just using your privilege, but it's also using your resources um, to support organizations and places that are advancing the equality or support of the LGBT community. And so I think, you know, I, I'm a supporter of, the, of, of QCF because I, I deeply believe in, in that ministry's work that ultimately saved me. Um, and so and saved me in a place where I didn't have resources other places, but I could get to it on the Internet. Uh, and it could ground me in that place. So I would say that share your story, share your story is a huge thing. Um, and people share things on social media and people are, are connected from a friend to a friend to a friend. And so they, you know, you, 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 somebody in the South or someone, a non-affirming small community shares with somebody, Oh, I'm gay. And I don't know what to do. Somebody may say, Hey, you know, I follow this person on social media and they post about that. And they're actually a gay from your pastor. What, what is that? Let me connect you. Right. And so I think only way to know those connections is by openly sharing your story um, and making yourself available. So I think all those things are important. Great. Well, thanks Josh for uh, joining us today, for sharing your story, for sharing some of your inspirations and also to the listeners, to the congregants, to the curious, thank you for sticking with us through this transitional time. But y'all, this is what Forefront is going to look like moving forward. So we're excited about it. We hope that you are excited about it. And uh, yeah, Josh, I guess just one final thing. What are you most excited about now that you're here moving forward? Like, what are you hopeful for? What are you hoping to see out of out of all of this? I am excited to be working with Reverend Vanita and with Mac, honestly. It, um, one of the major reasons why I chose to come to New York was because I really wanted to work with a team. Um, and I wanted there to be, I wanted to work with a team and I wanted that team to be diverse theologically as well as diverse in our racial makeup and our sexuality. And I didn't want to go to a cookie cutter church. Um, and so it was really important to me that that existed the way it did. And so those are things that really stood out to me. And I think that we just in the last couple of weeks of working together, like I, I feel like our personalities mesh well together. We have different experiences and ages and um, geographical locations that we come from and faith traditions and all these things and like degrees and backgrounds and interests like, but yet we mesh well enough because the things that matter we have in common. And so I'm super excited to just like work with them and get to know them and just figure out like what, what is it new that we can craft um, for the future, but also like what are the things that we can enhance and make even better that Forefront's been doing for a, for a while because of our backgrounds. I love how you put words to that, Josh. And um, I, oh my gosh, as the dogs, of course, start making noise in the background, we made it almost the whole time without them making noise. But anyway, um, I just, I just want to say thank you to both Josh and Vanita for, for joining our Forefront family here. And as we were beginning the search process for, to fill these two positions, that is exactly what I was hoping for, was for the final EC makeup to reflect what New York City is, which is transient, diverse in a multitude of ways. 
and see how our unique experiences, our new uncommon kinship can help one another grow and therefore help speak to our congregation that we are now reflecting back to them.